0: Well, today we are starting a new series, and uh, we are going to talk um, about Ridiculous this entire month. And before we begin this morning, I just need to make something very clear. And that is that today, this entire series actually, is I'm going to be speaking to Christians. And so if you're not a Christian, and you're here, hey, I'm so glad you're here, I'm excited that you came, and I trust that you continue to come But here's the good thing for you is if you're you're not a Christian, you literally can just kind of put your feet up this whole month and just listen in. I I trust you'll keep coming, but this whole month you can kind of just sit back and listen up. And if you've ever had a Christian point their finger at you, this is your your month to point back. Because you can literally be like, hey, this pastor is speaking just to you guys, and so how are you doing with what you're doing? And so I really want to focus this entire month on those of us who are Christians, because I believe that there are some things that the Scriptures very clearly expects of us as Christians. And, uh, and so we're lo- I'm looking forward to that. We're going to start today by talking about um, the ridiculous call. The ridiculous call that God has put on our life. And we're going to go through the book of, uh, I mean not through the book, we're going to go through the life of Elisha. And look at the life that this man lived. Uh, You probably know Elijah really well, but we're going to look at Elisha. Now, I love the way Scripture does this. Wouldn't it have been nice if instead of it being Elijah and Elisha, um, God would have said, you know what, Elijah, choose someone named Frederick, you know? Just so you don't keep confusing the two. I don't know about you, but even through the sermon, you're probably going to be like, I think he means Elisha, but he's mixed them up. And so I apologize in advance because I I did that quite a bit in the other service. But um, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, it'd be like Obadiah and Elisha or something like that. So it's like, yeah, okay, I totally understand the difference between the two. We know a lot about Elijah. Most of us know more about Elijah than we do know about Elisha. And yet Elisha performed more miracles than Elijah. And for some reason, he's just not as well known. But this month, we're going to spend time looking into this man's life. Now, if you're a little old school, and you hear me say the word ridiculous, you immediately associate it with something bad. You know, If I would look at somebody and say, man, you're ridiculous, you would view that as, okay, well, that's not a very big compliment, that's, you know, that's actually a bit of a put-down, it's, it's not something you would, you would say to somebody, like, oh, don't do that, that's ridiculous, you know, uh, it's kind of standoffish, but there's another meaning to the word, and, and, and if you're a little old school, like I am, you know, you kind of wrestle with this, but now ridiculous can also mean amazing, so if someone does something, and it's like, wow, did you see that catch? That was ridiculous. And everybody's like, I know, wow, you know. And if you're old school, you're looking at it going, why are they all applauding something that they think is awful? You know, For example, the word sick, it's another one of those words. Remember when sick was sick? If somebody said, hey, I'm sick, you'd be like, oh, man, you all right? Like, what's wrong? Do you have a stomach ache, or what's going on? Now when someone says, wow, that was sick, you're sitting there going, oh, what's wrong with it, you know. And yet they're going, that was so cool. Bad is another word. Man, that was bad. You know, oh, so now, now bad is good. And so we get all confused, you know, but that's just the way we are. See, North Americans, we have a very small vocabulary as it is, and so now we're just adding double meaning to the same words just to confuse us even more. It's not the word's fault, it's our fault. So this month, we're going to look at the latter version or the latter meaning of the word ridiculous in the sense of we're going to look at it as if it's amazing. What God has done, the call that God has placed on our lives, and we're going to look at a number of different things throughout this month, ridiculous call, ridiculous faith, ridiculous provisions, and we're going to look at four of those this month, um, that God has done, it is an amazing thing. Now, if you look at the life of Elisha, Elisha was ridiculous. He was bold. He was, you know, he was crazy in his faith. He was ridiculous in his faith. God did ridiculous things through him. And no, I don't want you counting how many times I say the word ridiculous in the sermon. But anyway, there's this guy named Elijah, as we already said. He is often confused with Elisha, and sometimes we get him mixed up. But Elisha, Elijah was one of the best known prophets of that of the Old Testament. He was a bold, daring man. He's the kind of guy that we look at when you know, if you're gonna stand in the face of adversity, you think of someone like Elijah. He stood in front of King Ahab. He stood in front of all the prophets of Baal. And he made this little thing on Mount Carmel. You call on Baal, I'll call on the one true God. And whoever answers with fire, that is the real true God. And that's, the, that's Elijah. Those are the stories that we know really well uh, about this man. Elisha, we don't know quite as much about this guy. But Here's the thing about Elisha. Right at the beginning already, we see that Elisha is going to be unique. Because when Elijah and Elisha meet, one of the things that Elisha does is he says to Elijah, I want you to give me a double portion of your anointing. And we're going to unpack this more in future sermons. But right off the bat, Elijah is, you know, or sorry, Elisha is already saying, I want you to give me a double portion of your anointing. I want to do twice as much as you do. That's a big thing to ask for when you're considering the best known prophet of the day. That would be like someone going up to a well-known businessman today and saying, hey, I want twice as much as you. I want to do twice as well as you. I want to accomplish twice as much as you've accomplished. It's one thing if it was like some nobody, but if this is a you know, a big person, it's like, wow, that's amazing. And that's what Elisha does right off the bat with this well-known prophet Elijah. He says, I want a double portion of everything of your anointing. And the amazing thing is God in His sovereignty somehow answers Elisha's request. And Elisha performs more recorded miracles than anyone else in Scripture aside from Jesus. And yet we know very little about Elisha. And not, not a ton is actually written about him either, but, but we want to look at this man's life. I think the thing for us to do sometimes, or the thing that we sometimes do without meaning to, is we'll look at someone like Elijah, and we'll look at someone like Elisha, and some of these other well-known people in Scripture, and we look at them as if though they were somehow different than us. As if what happened to them could never happen to us. Or, or we see them as superhuman. And so it must have been easy for them to do what they did. Because they're superhumans. They must have been these, you know, these people that didn't have feelings, that didn't have fears, that, that you know, when God asked them to do something, they were just like, oh, okay, no problem, because I've been waiting around for this to happen and now I'm going to do it. And I think that we need to look at this man's life and recognize that Elisha was very much an ordinary man like we are, an ordinary person. He wasn't the son of a priest. He wasn't a monk. He wasn't some spiritual giant, which is what you would expect if you're going to hand over you know, the, the mantle to the next person. You would be looking for someone that would be highly qualified in these kind of things. Elijah was, Elisha was an ordinary person. He was still living at home with his parents. Hats off to all you still living at home with your parents. You know, He's working on the farm, and he's doing the same thing, that God had called him to do, or the same thing that he was supposed to do every single day, and that was go plow the fields. The context is that he lived during the 9th century B.C. in a time when Israel was divided. During this time, many people worshipped the God of Baal. And so God raises up this ordinary guy in this extraordinary time when the, the people of Israel are literally divided... And he places on this man this amazing call to do what Elijah had, been, Elijah had been doing, plus more. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to read three verses here and then unpack them. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. It's also on the screen if you want to follow along there. So Elisha went from there and found Elisha, son of Saphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, And he himself was driving the twelve pair. Elijah went up to him and and threw his coat around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. And then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and gave it to the people, and they ate it. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. There's a lot of interesting things in this passage, and most likely you've heard sermons on this passage before. Scripture says here that Elisha was out plowing with these oxen. Nothing ex- uh, spectacular, nothing amazing, not the kind of thing that you would expect, you know, if you're going to hand over your, your responsibility to someone else. You would maybe be looking for someone who's down on their knees, praying every single day, someone that had been fasting for a long time, someone that had just been through a really deep spiritual adv- uh, journey in their life. That's not the way this story unfolds. The story unfolds by Elisha doing the everyday things that he needed to do. He's plowing. Stephen Furtick wrote a book called Greater, and in that book he unpacks the story of Elisha. And in this book he points out the obvious, but it's also simple for us to miss. The obvious is this, the monotony of Elisha's life. Plowing every single day, going through the same things all the time. Think about this for a minute. If you're Elisha, what are you smelling every day? We'll just call it oxen residue. Okay? What's his scenery? What does he see every single day? He's seeing oxen rears or oxen buttoxes or oxen tails, or the behinds of an oxen. We'll just keep it G-rated in here. But that's what he's seeing every single day. Now, just to help you out, here's, here's one picture. You know, that's the view. This is this man's view. Now, just to give you even better visual, we'll just show this one really quick. But just, that's it right there. That's, that's his view every single day. Lovely, right? And so every single day, there's Elisha behind this group of oxen plowing away, smelling the same thing every day, you know, seeing the same scenery every day, doing the ordinary. Definitely nothing extraordinary but what Elisha was doing. Now, you may feel a little bit like Elisha. Now, hopefully you don't call your co-workers oxen rears or anything like that. But maybe you feel like yourself, you're doing the same thing day after day. I wonder if Elisha ever went through the day, and he's looking up going, oh, good grief. You know, what did you eat? You know, and he's going through this day again, and he's thinking to himself, is this all I'm ever going to do? See, sometimes the monotonous or the monotony of life can just wear us down to the point where we're so discouraged. We we think that this is it, that we have reached the climax of our lives. This is all we're ever going to do. Maybe you're working in the same job you were hoping to work in for only temporary moment. Maybe you're doing the same thing, or maybe you're with the same people, and and there's something about this situation that you're just kind—it's getting old to you. But you're wondering—you're starting to think this is all that life has for me. That may have very well been where Elisha was, doing the normal, doing what he was doing every single day. And yet, the cool thing about this was. That he stayed faithful in what he was doing at that time. But then things get ridiculous. Elijah shows up. Elijah went up to him and threw his coat around him. Now, what does this mean? You know, what, what, what do we mean by he threw this coat around him? Well, obviously, what Elijah was doing, he's saying to Elisha, with this act of throwing his coat around this man, I am now passing on to you, or I am now laying on you the responsibility that God has placed on me. Or in a sense, we could look at it as passing a baton down, or passing the mantle over. I am now giving to you the call that God has given to me. Now what's clear is that Elisha understands this. Because he wasn't like, dude, thanks for the coat. It's name brand. Oh man, this is awesome. He immediately seemed to understand what was being asked of him. Because he immediately leaves his oxen and runs after Elijah. We also see that he understands, Elisha understands, that this is a big thing. This isn't just some little, you know, go away for a weekend kind of Um, Coat that's been put on him. He understands that this is going to be something big. How big? That is not clear yet. Because you also get a sense from him here that Elisha assumes that he's never going to see his parents again. So Elisha says to Elijah, Hey, before I come follow you, can I just go say goodbye to my parents? And Elisha's like, Go. What have I done to you? It's not a rebuke. Commentaries don't see that, you know, when they talk about that verse, they don't see it as a, a rebuke. It's kind of like Elijah, Elisha just going, yeah, go ahead, but I'm not sticking around. I'm not going to wait until you, you know, go and see if this is the right thing for you to do or not. I, you know, if you want to go do that, you go ahead. What have I done? I'm not asking you not to. Just go. And so Elisha goes and he, you know, kisses his parents goodbye, and then he comes after Elisha. So this is where we get our first lesson on ridiculous on the ridiculous call. And that is this. And this is something I got from a guy named Craig Rochelle. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. It goes like this. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. All Elisha knows at this point is that he has symbolically been given, or this, some, this code has symbolically represented that the... Mantle has now been passed on to him. He doesn't have a clue what that all means, but it's like Elijah took, Elijah took a cold cup of water or a cold um, jar, pail of water and splashed it in the face of Elisha to snap him out of the mundane of his life. Elisha doesn't sit down with his friends to look at all the pros and cons of following Elijah. He doesn't make a five-year plan, you know, he doesn't have a five-year plan of what his life will look like and where he thinks it will be going. He doesn't even pray about it. He just gets up, and without having all the information, he goes and he obeys fully. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. But things get even crazier in Elisha's life. So Elisha, verse 21 again, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meal and gave it to the people. What's, Elijah's doing, what's Elisha doing here? In essence, what Elisha is doing here, he's saying, I'm going to burn plan B. I'm going to burn plan B. In other words, I'm going to slaughter the oxen that have pulled my plow, and I'm going to burn the plow to eat the oxen. In other words, at the end of it, there's nothing left but a full stomach. There is no plan B to go back to. The ironic thing or the, the strange thing for us is this is what we so often don't want to do. We want to keep plan B. We sort of say things like, well, if that doesn't work out, at least I'll have something to fall back on. It's as if though we're saying to God, you know, I'm going to keep something in reserve just in case what you plan for me to do doesn't work out. And so in essence, what we're saying to God is, I'm going to, you know, assume that your plan is going to fail. And so I'll make sure that when your plan fails, that I'll have something to fall back on. Now, we would never say that. But I wonder if that's what God hears us say through how we live our lives. You see, you and I, if you're like me, we want multiple choices. We need and we want reassurance. How many times haven't we maybe heard God call us to do something, and, and then we've got to go and we've got we to gotta make sure that this is really what God wants us to do before we'll do anything. We don't have to fully understand to immediately obey. We want options. And I think we've somehow convinced ourselves, or at least I sometimes i try to convince myself, that, that God is going to reveal His plan to me with options. So we may think it would sound something like this, God speaking, saying, Hey, Ike, I have a plan for you. Actually, as a matter of fact, I have three plans for your life. I have three options for you. Which one do you want to do, Ike? Oh, God, I'll take plan. I'll take the middle one. And God looking at us going, I knew you would. That's why I made it the best one. I think most of us, because we're so used to having multiple options, you go to any store, there are more chip options than you could ever eat. There is more Shampoo, there's more toothpaste than any one person would ever use in their life. Why? Because we love options. We want it to be catered just for us. And I think the danger is that we think God's going to do the same thing with His will and His plan for our lives. And so then, as soon as it's not catered just for us, or as soon as it doesn't, or we don't think it's catered just for us, We're wondering, is this really God's plan? And so we meet with people, and we delay, and we delay, and we delay, because we got to first fully understand before we're going to obey. Elisha doesn't do that. He obeys immediately, and then he burns plan B. There's no going back. And this takes us to the second lesson about our ridiculous call, and that is this the less we hold on to, the more likely for God to use us. The less we're holding on to, the more likely for God to use us. I wonder if you've ever said something like this. Man, I'd love to go serve there, but I have a mortgage. So I can't get away. Now that I have second car payments, you know, we're just not going to be able to do some of the trips that we had hoped to do. Or if I, pass, if I don't pass this year, if I go on that short-term mission trip, or if I take time to serve there, or if I, if, I, you know, if I don't pass this year, I can kiss my career goodbye. Or I've been working at this job for so long, and I am so close to that promotion, and man, if I take time off now to go help in this area, they're going to give that promotion to someone else. And so I'm not going to go, because I want that promotion so badly. The more we hold on to, the less likely for God to use us. Elisha lets go completely. He's like, okay, I'll kill my oxen and I'll burn the plow. There is nothing for me to go back to. And I think that that's what God is looking for in us. That is part of the ridiculous call to... Do something even though we don't fully understand, to obey immediately, to let go of everything, so that whatever God has for us, that's what we're going to be satisfied in. Now I said before that this sermon was for those of us who are Christians. And I think we as Christians can look back on this call on Elisha's life and say, Man, that is that is incredible, that is ridiculous. I can't believe that Elisha would do that. And we can separate ourselves from that person and say, Man, I'm so glad he did what he did. And we We can marvel at what he did, and we can be amazed. And I think in the process, we can easily forget that, guess what? You and I have also been given a call. This is going to be nothing new to you, Christians, but let me just remind us. God sent his son, Jesus, into this world to save the lost. And while Jesus was here on earth, he he chose 12 disciples. Teenagers. People with problems. The kind of people that today we would kick out of colleges because they're not smart enough to be there. The kind that a seminary would say, you know what, you've got the right heart, but you don't got the brains. You failed. Go home. Stick to your career that you had before you tried this. You didn't make it. And Jesus finds these guys. And he starts teaching them. He spends about three years with them, and he's educating them. But more importantly, he's giving them a very personal example on how they are to live. And one day, it becomes absolutely clear to these disciples that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And then he starts talking to these guys about what's going to come next. And he's like, you know, guess what? I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise back from the dead. And then I'm going to go back to my Heavenly Father. But before I do, I want you to know that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit going to come and He's going to dwell in you. And sure enough, Jesus is killed. He allows Himself to be killed. And like He promised, Jesus rose from the dead. And His disciples are now sure of one thing, that He is Truly, truly, truly the Son of God. There is no question in their minds that this is the Son of God. Because only the Son of God would have the authority over death. But this is where things go crazy. You see, Jesus could have now said, okay, you know what? I just rose from the dead. I'm no longer bound by distance and walls and those kind of things. So, guys... Thanks for sticking with me these three years. I'm now going to personally go and talk to every single person in the world about me. And who's not going to believe it when I, you know, show them the things that I can do? Who's not going to obey me? Who's not going to follow me if I can do some miracle right there in front of them? But that's not Jesus' plan. Instead, Jesus does the most ridiculous, amazing thing ever he looks at these 12 disciples and he takes, in a sense, his coat and he puts it on them and he says, Go and represent me. And friends, that call is on you and I. That was not just for the 11 disciples. If you don't know the scripture, I said 12 before, 1 You know, betrayed Jesus, took his own life, and so now there's 11, and later they choose another one. Long story short. But nonetheless, Jesus says to these guys, I want you to go. I want you to go and represent me. I want you to go and proclaim the message of Jesus. I want you to take the message that I have given you, the examples that I have shown. I want you now to go and do this. So friends, you and I, we have a ridiculous call on our lives. You don't have to fully understand what Jesus all wants you to do to obey immediately. And the more you're going to hold on, on things in this earth, the less likely for God to use you. Let me try to illustrate some of this, about this call, that I hope will make sense, and also express to us the urgency in this in our society we have people who wear uniforms and with that uniform obviously comes an identity for example a doctor a pilot a police officer and so when a police officer puts on that uniform you would look up to that you would look to that police officer and you would immediately know that that man's job or that woman's job is to be a police officer to enforce the law You would see a doctor in their doctor outfit and you would say that person somewhere in their life took on the call of being a doctor. That person's job, that person's call on their life is to preserve life because they're wearing the uniform. A pilot, when he gets behind that Cockpit, you know, with full confidence that when you walk in the door and you can see them there, you know, you you know that that person somewhere in their life took on the call of being a pilot, and you trust them with your life. Another example would be a firefighter. So let's say a firefighter puts on the suit, and I'm going to show you a little video. And a firefighter puts on this suit, and he shows up at something like this. fire burning away. He's got his suit on, he zips it up, and, you know, and this is what he's trained to do. This, this doesn't intimidate him too much, because he's a firefighter. And so he gets his suit on, and, and he rushes over to the scene. And he's looking at that, and he's got his boots on, he's got his jacket on, he feels the weight of that, because it's a heavy, heavy, heavy jacket. And this firefighter shows up at the scene, but then this firefighter does what every firefighter does. He gets in front of the chief. He folds his hands and he says, Chief, what's your will for my life? Chief, what is it you want me to do? Chief, what's your purpose? And all the while... The fire is burning. Just pause that there for a second, please. What do you think that chief would say to this firefighter? Take a guess. You're a firefighter. Go fight the fire. What do you mean? What's your purpose? You're a firefighter. Go put the fire out. That's my purpose for you. That's what I want you to do. That's my plan. That's why you're here. That's why you're wearing the suit. Is it any different with Christianity? Let's just say that fire represents a non-Christian And God has placed on you and I, as Christians, the call to go. And we see a non-Christian like this burning building, and we're in front of God going, I wonder what you want me to do with my life. I realize I'm being a little facetious, but I want to get your attention. That's your neighbor. That's your co-worker. That's maybe your family member. That's maybe your enemy right there. And your call, according to Jesus, is to go and make disciples of all nations. Go put out the fire. Let me ask you this. Do you see the irony in this picture? Anybody? What's the irony? There's tons of water. Right there. There is enough water right in that river to put that fire out in an instant. Friends, I think you and I sometimes forget the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. It's like all that water just sitting there in us, this Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and yet we're afraid. We think we're going to be rejected, and I share with you all these fears. Man, I wish I could present this sermon as someone who has mastered evangelism. I haven't. But we cannot, we cannot forget the call that God placed on our lives to go. If we're impressed by Elisha, If we're so glad that Elisha obeyed immediately, if we're so glad that Elisha held on to nothing, then you and I should in the same way give up everything. Who cares if we don't know how to do it? Who cares if we don't think we have all the words? Let's go and share the message of Jesus with those who don't yet know him. Now I see what some of you are doing. I've been in front of you often enough. Some of you are fading out. I'm asking you today not to. Some of you are trying to block this out. The last thing you want to do is tell someone about Jesus because you're scared to death. And so you're sitting there, and and I'm I'm good. I'm, I'm pretty good at reading people. I'm reading some of you really well right now. You're going, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. So I'm asking you today, don't fade out. Experience the ridiculousness of God's call on your life to go. It's a privilege, it's an amazing gift that we've been given to go and to lead people to become followers of Jesus. So in our church we say it this way, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We know this, we're never going to save someone on our own. And our job isn't to be rude about it. Our job isn't to be in people's face and judgmental. Our job is to simply lead people into a relationship with Christ. Ex- express Jesus' love to them over and over and over. Why? Because we are convinced of this. The more often people have an encounter with Jesus, that Jesus is so incredible that eventually those people are going to say, I want that. I want that. Andrew Maron says this, with Jesus comes change. We may want to change someone. We can't change them. But what we can do is bring Jesus into their presence over and over and over again. And the best way for us to do that is to love on those people. So that's a challenge, and I'm running out of time. I need to stop. Let me just wrap up this way. So remember, you don't have to fully understand to obey immediately. And secondly, the less we hold on to, the more likely for God to use us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much um, for Elisha. And God, I know myself, man, the first thing I'm tempted to do is just to assume that he was somehow just this extraordinary person who, for them, this was easy. And they were just like, oh, okay, if this is what you want me to do, God, then I'm all in. I pray, God, that we would be like Elisha. And even though we don't have all the information, even though we don't fully understand everything that's going on, I pray, God, that today we would say, you know what, I'll still obey. Jesus, I don't know what your plan is for my life. I don't know what you're all going to do. I don't know what it's going to all cost me, but I'm in. Jesus, I don't know what you're all going to ask me to let go, but here's my hands, they're wide open. Take whatever out you want. And put in whatever you want. Because I recognize and I acknowledge the ridiculousness of your call, Jesus, to go, to lead people. So I pray that for all of us, God, and we wouldn't chicken out. In Jesus' name I pray.